Good morning. Always good to see you guys. I, um, I, I know that you could question my sincerity about this, but I, I did get in touch with Josh and told him that I just wanted to come visit. I, that uh, probably sounds a bit suspicious to people, especially um, in light of what I do, uh, because most of the time, uh, people in my role, they don't usually make visits unless they have the opportunity to be heard. And um, I, I don't mean that to be critical, but relationships are extremely important to me, especially in this phase in my life more than ever before because I understand uh, just how fleeting this life is. So, again, so good to see you. I asked him last night or this morning, was it last night? Last night, yeah. I was texting and I told him, I said, you know, I uh, understand you're doing a cantata in the morning and I wanted the opportunity to audition for the solo and he found that humorous. I don't understand why, but um, at any rate, um, I understand that ordinarily, whenever we come to the topic of the resurrection, our minds usually gravitate toward the Gospels, and that's understandable, especially when we are doing a forensic investigation of what really happened at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But the truth is, the whole of Scripture is about resurrection. From Genesis to Revelation, this theme of resurrection is woven through it all because he is all about making all things new. Not making all new things, but all things new. Are you with me so far? So, I, I probably said this in previous visits, but when I'm not getting uh, the kind of feedback that I would desire, I tend to go longer because I feel that people are not getting the point. So it would behoove you to be vigorous in your response. Thank you. My text is found in John chapter 20. If you want to turn there, John chapter 20. And I'm going to be reading about one of many resurrection appearances. John chapter 20. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it in its broader context, but I'm just going to leap right into verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father hath sent me, even so... I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What I'd like to talk to you about may sound a, a bit paradoxical to some, but I want to talk to you about resurrection trauma. We certainly, in the last year or so, have been traumatized by the events that have descended, not just on this country, but the entire globe. I think you would agree with that. And uh, when I come to this text and make sure you don't judge me prematurely, when I come to these texts, as I have so many times before, not just in this particular season, and look again at passages that I thought I had understood with great clarity, I find myself, and I'm just going to be very honest with you after all these years, asking myself, do I really believe a text like this? Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. I, um, yeah, do I really believe? You see, it's true that our reference always influences our preference. And many of us don't realize that there is something referred to, especially in tribal Christianity, that is somewhat of a group psychology. Now, some of you, I'm sure, already are very concerned about the direction which I'm going. I'm not a deconstructionist, uh, and if you're not familiar with that terminology, you are very blessed. There's a lot of this language that is being batted about these days about deconstruction, uh, questioning the things that we believe. And I understand that. Uh, to have a God that is easily offended by our questions is a God that we should reconsider. Because God is not defensive or offended by our questions. Uh, he wired you to ask questions. The truth is, when you ask really good questions, and really a good question is one, or an honest question, is one that doesn't already have an answer. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, there are people that often ask me questions because I guess they consider me to have, you know, some degree of understanding. But I can almost immediately tell when those questions fall from their lips that it's not an honest question because they've already got an answer. They have this thing that all of us have unconsciously called confirmation bias. That's something that um, I'm confronted with quite often. And so when we look at this text, you can feel the palpable doubt that is in the room. Very much like what many of us have been experiencing over the last few months. And I don't, I, I don't want to obsess over the darkness, this present darkness, because I think obsessing over the darkness is actually worse than the darkness itself. But there's a word that we have used more consistently in the last several months than we've ever used in our entire lives. And that word is pandemic. And I, I don't know whether it's been addressed here previous to this morning, 
But the word pandemic, intrinsic to the word pandemic, is the word pandemonium and panic. And uh, very few people are aware of where this originated. Where did it all originate? I'm not talking about Wuhan, China. I'm not talking about that at all. In Matthew 16, when Jesus, you know, is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out the most unlikely candidate in the group to get it. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember this scenario very well, don't you? And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's important for us to understand the context in which Jesus said that, because all of this unfolded in a place called Caesarea of Philippi. And when Jesus said that, when he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, he actually gestured, even though Matthew does not elucidate this idea, he actually gestured to something in the topography that was nearby. It was a cave, and the the mouth of this cave went deep into the earth. And this is where pagans would come and worship and they worshipped a god called Pan, this mythological god that was half goat and half man. And it was believed that the reason why he was called Pan is because he caused panic and terror. If that is not illustrative of where we are right now, I don't know how else, else to say it. We have to understand the real source of all this, and now I feel myself really getting out into the weeds. Uh, i got to come back to the text. You're getting me off the subject, as you do often. But again, I'm just being very honest with you and tell you, you know, sometimes when I read about the resurrection, I mean, I, I've, you know, I have Bibles that are highlighted, underlined to the point that they're almost not legible anymore. But deep inside of me, I wonder... Anybody else? Don't everybody respond at one time. I mean, it's okay. It really is. I I love what Frederick uh, Beekner says about this. He said, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt without somehow destroying me in the process? If there was no room for doubt, there'd be no room for me. So, Back to this room, this small, suffocating room. They probably are listening to John, if you allow me the liberty, because John is the only one that was an eyewitness from this group. He's the only one that is an eyewitness to what Jesus experienced. If you think I'm taking too much liberty with this, maybe you should engage your imagination more when you read texts like this because it would cause you to experience it in high definition and surround sound. Because as I've read it over and over this week, I wondered what was going on in the exchange between these men. Again, John was the only one that was standing close enough that that he probably had drops of sweat and blood fall from the cross on him. 
Maybe on his tunic there's still bloodstains where he stood close enough to experience this. So he's doing his best to describe to them the indescribable. This excruciating pain that Jesus endured this past week, I was thinking about pain. And I know that for us, we usually measure pain on a scale, don't we? If a physician, if you are in pain, a physician is probing and he asks the question, what's your pain level, right? On a scale of one to 10. What Jesus experienced from not only sleep deprivation, dehydration, a gruesome beating that defies even the most eloquent ability to somehow describe. His bowels are protruding from his body. How do we know that? Because the psalmist saw it. Uh, Every bone has been pulled out of joint. Again, dehydration, sleep deprivation, muscle cramps, uh, massive blood loss, hallucinations, all those things. And I began to think about the word excruciating. And the word excruciating, that's, you know, that's the word that we use to describe pain that is beyond description. It comes from the word cruciate, which is a direct reference to the cross itself. It comes from the same root that we use for crucifixion. So without a doubt, what Jesus had experienced as John is trying to describe it was beyond a 10. Would you agree with that? Now, the reason why I decided to take the topic resurrection trauma is because there is not a person with a pulse in this room that has not experienced a degree of trauma in some way or fashion. Trauma is is really about um, being human to a great degree. That might not sound very encouraging to you. But I think that most of our suffering is usually exacerbated as a result of us being unhealthily attached to expected outcomes. Some of the things that you have lost in your life, some of the things that I've lost, it doesn't minimize the pain, but sometimes I think it is exacerbated as a result uh, of me having these expected out. It didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. We've had death in our family just in the last few months. And it appears that there are, that's on the horizon for many others in our family. And so, again, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I think the trauma that these guys are experiencing is, has, has been made worse as a result of them having a certain expectation. Does that make sense to anybody? You see, there are wounds that never show on our body that are deeper and more hurtful than anything that can bleed. 
there's a science, and this may be boring to some of you, but it's absolutely fascinating to me. There's a science uh, now called epigenetics. Now, you're familiar with the word genetics, but what is this epigenetics? The word epi means over. And essentially, what it is talking about is that there is trauma that it actually creates molecular scars that can be transmitted through the generations. That may not seem very plausible to you, but I'm convinced that in my human experience that there are deep wounds, even in me, that occurred before I even arrived. Does that sound too weird for you? You know, I'm capable of weirding you out in new ways. Some of you already know that. But is it possible that we can bear any kind of pain as long as we know it has a meaning? I think so. Lately, I've been talking to a lot of people that, in my opinion, have grossly misinterpreted what we've been enduring in the last year or so and what is the ultimate outcome. And so the default setting of a lot of my friends is God is in control, which I would challenge that. Is God in control? Now you're deeply concerned about me, right? God is in control. God's got this. All things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And everybody said, amen to that. That's probably one of the most misinterpreted things that Paul ever said. Because the broader context of that statement, all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose, is in the verses that precede that because he would say this to define 828 of Romans. He would say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. See, everything really is about perspective. These guys, though, because of what has happened in the last three days, have lost perspective. Imagine what it must have looked like. I mean, uh, the room is so much drowning in fear that they're almost suffocating. I'm sure that after John, if in fact this is what happened after John begins to describe the gruesome details of his crucifixion, that all of them can't even look at one another. Their heads are not up, their heads are down. They're staring at the floor. It's extremely awkward, which I I know this might not seem relative to the topic this morning, but quite often through the years, I've discovered that when people suffer loss, it is not really my responsibility to go and say cliche things to them. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. I used to think that was my role, that was my responsibility. If somebody died, 
is I'm to show up and I, you know, people a lot of times, they don't need to hear another verse. Did I say that? Yes, I did. They don't need you to cite another verse. They don't need you to do what's expected. They just need you to be there. I mean, that was one of the most liberating things that ever happened to me in this particular occupation that I have is just knowing they just need presence. They don't need me parroting verses. So consider this scene that John describes. The disciples are huddled together in this dark room, barely daring to breathe. The doors are locked, secured, they're barred, as he described. The barricade provides what they believe to be a measure of security, but still they huddle in fear because on the other side of that door is death. I had something happen interesting this week and saddening. My wife and I drove through our old neighborhood where we had lived for 18 years there in North Myrtle Beach, and we just wanted to see the house, the new occupants bought it three years ago to see what changes they might have made. And when we turned down the street, I saw our old neighbor standing in the driveway. And so I, I, just, I couldn't just drive on by, so I stopped and rolled the window down. Ms. Goldman, how are you? She looked at me from the driveway, keeping her distance, and I could tell she didn't recognize me. I said, I'm Randall. I used to be your neighbor. Oh, but she still didn't approach the car. Immediately, she told me, these were my neighbors for 18 years. She said, Ron died last July. She said, I have not left this house in over a year. Paralyzed by fear, it wasn't just the loss of her husband. But this, and I begin to realize what bubble I live in, how many people are just like that, you know, that live with this agoraphobia. They won't leave the confines because of their home because in some ways they feel like that there's safety there. And this is really what is going on with these guys. They they are in their isolation, and please make sure you understand this, in their isolation, they are actually avoiding transformation. Because until we really embrace our pain and acknowledge it and become vulnerable with it, that's what the word vulnerable means. It means susceptible to being wounded. But in their isolation, they cannot experience transformation. So, it, see, it's safer to remain there together, safely tucked away, than to venture out there because there's so much risk on the other side of those walls. See, what we miss in this narrative is that they understood the culture. They understood the Roman ideology that there was a bounty on their head as well. When are they coming for me? I hope you're seeing the relevance of this and connecting the dots that 
This is characteristic of the time that we're living in. I mean, you've come out today, but that doesn't mean necessarily that you're fully out of the fear that has paralyzed you. The pan spirit, if I might be so bold to say. So the air in that room is hot and thick with the stench of fear. Mm. Such a silent tension, you could probably cut it with a knife, and it weighs heavier on them than if an elephant was sitting on their chest. Because the days following the execution of Jesus were not only dizzying but disorienting. Their heads were reeling from all of this. Can I offer a word of encouragement to you? Maybe a word of perspective to you. And I want you to understand that I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to myself. Can you accept that? Does that sound disingenuous? When I find myself now more than ever before when I'm talking to an audience, I'm not just talking to you. This is self-talk as well. Because I'll replay this in my head again. When we are in the middle of a crisis, our unbelief insists on total knowing. That's just the way the ego is. It's in the middles, in the middles of crisis that extremes begin to clash. And ambiguity and fuzziness, it ruthlessly rules. I don't really think that we fear the unknown. Really? I mean, there's so many unknowns right now, right, about the economy and politics and, you know, what's out there on the horizon. But I don't really think that we fear the unknown. We fear what we are convinced we know about the unknown. That's what you fear. That's why I addressed the issue earlier. Is God in control? You're not sure whether to answer that or not, are you? I know when I posed that just a few weeks ago to an audience, everybody, you know, in unison said, yes, God is in control. After all, what about all the omnis in Scripture? He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. What about those? Does that not suggest that he is in control? See, here's the real issue as far as I'm concerned. The belief that God is all-powerful does not necessarily suggest that he chooses always to exercise that power in ways that make sense to us. Does that make sense to you? Because if anything, like Philip Yancey, I've learned that faith is trusting that what doesn't make sense now will in reverse. I hold firmly to that. So these men, even though Jesus had evacuated a tomb, they were in a tomb of their own making. And what does he do? (coughs) Excuse me. Notice in the first verse of the text, on the evening, 
he waits till nightfall. But, you know, we should understand that this is a clue to us. This is a clue that he doesn't just wait for the sun to fall over the western horizon. But God always comes in situations that seems to be falling apart. And I would, I would contend that right now the things that are falling apart need to fall apart so something better can come together. But the first reference that we have to anything occurring in the evening is in the creation account. Every day was the evening and the morning. The evening and the morning, God waits for things to get dark because that's where he does his best work. He waits so the, for those times when you can't see. I think often he does this because he realizes that if we could see as clearly as we wanted to, that we probably would get in the way of his creative acts. So it's the evening and it's the first day. You say, well, so the Sabbath had shifted, right, from the Jewish way of measuring it from Saturday to Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It really speaks to me of the Sabbath in the Genesis account. Please hear this. It's so simple yet so helpful that when he rested from all of his works on the seventh day, right? On Sunday, on the Sabbath, when he rested from all of his works, he is still inviting us, and this is the reason why he says in Hebrews that we labor to enter into his rest. What we're doing right now that is laborious in nature is that we're trying to enter his rest. And most of the stuff we're praying about we're not getting God's attention because God's already done everything that he will ever do. You see, I think I probably said it here before, but it bears repeating right now that prayer is not you about you informing God at all. Prayer is not about you so much petitioning him to get him to do what you want him to do or to convince him to intervene or to invade in your situation as much as prayer is an invitation from him to enter his perspective on the way things are. I mean, that, I think that's what Paul was reaching for when he said, when we pray, we don't know how to pray. We pray in groanings that it's guttural in nature, right? We pray in groanings that cannot be uttered. They're unintelligible the most intelligible prayers that you will pray are usually unintelligible. <laughs> Does that make sense to you? So it's the evening of the first day, but to them, they're still locked in time. Their time clock stopped. Their life clock stopped three days prior. They're caught between hideous Friday so you call it Good Friday. It wasn't so good from their perspective. Come on with me now. They've already gone through Silent Saturday. Have you ever heard of that concept? The Eastern Church talks about that, the Silent Saturday. It'd be helpful for you to take a look at that. 
Maybe what God is doing in this time is he's trying to teach them to hear and to perceive on a different frequency. Isn't it true that we get accustomed to hearing and receiving in a certain way from God? And then when it seems like that is shut down, you lose signal. We grope to hear him in different ways. I think that's the reason why he says we walk by faith and not by sight. You see, when you can't see, he's trying to teach you how to hear. And when you can't hear, he's trying to teach you how to see. So, I'm trying to hasten on here. When Jesus came and stood among them, I love this. You know, I, I came from a charismatic culture, which I have great admiration for, but I came from a charismatic um, orientation that emphasized our pursuit of God. And to me these days, that's almost laughable. You don't pursue him, but he's forever been pursuing you. Really? Yeah, I, I, it doesn't feel that way. Well, the real issue is not his presence, but your awareness. Because I don't know whether you notice, you know, I, these verses are few in number, and uh, they're punctuated in, in a certain way, but I can read that in a matter of probably 30 seconds, can I? But how much time lapsed between what we refer to as verses 19 through 23? I mean, there may have been, so it may have been a long, awkward moment when he first manifest in the room. Because if you read it, you realize that at first they didn't recognize him. Because when he shows up, it was a common greeting. Peace. That's why he had to say it the second time. Did you notice that? Look back at it again, if you will. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They still, that's the reason why he had to offer further evidence, didn't he? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. See, trauma does that to us, doesn't it? I mean, it... it it so seizes us until our reality, our reality, becomes obscured. And we don't realize that the way you see things are not necessarily the way they are. It's just the way you see them. How much time lapsed between, poof, he appears in the room. And he says, hi. I'm not trying to be trivial. Essentially what he did. But then he extends his hands. If there's anything I take away from that is that, and, and so incredibly encouraging, is that you can be resurrected and still wounded. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is trying to show them that you can go through this and transform it 
Because as one wise man said, we either transform our pain or we become transmitters of our pain. And that's essentially what he's trying to do in showing them the wounds, not to give them further evidence. See, he understood their woundedness. He doesn't show up and say, hey, guys, where were you when I needed you? You idiots. He didn't do that, does he? That's, that's the thing. I, listen, if he is appearing to you, it is never to come to you with condemnation and judgment and browbeating and telling you, you fool, you abandoned me. You betrayed me. He doesn't do that. Peter, he could have appeared. Peter, you think I forgot what happened three days ago when you denied me in public? Are the rest of you going to be like Judas? Judas is already dead and gone, right? Are you going to be like him? He doesn't do that, does he? Because the presence of God, just like his justice, is never retributive. That's so hard for church people to wrap their minds around. His justice has never been retributive. It is always restorative in nature. Would it be shocking if I said this? Another wise aphorism is that the way God punishes us is by loving us more. See, people don't give up on God. They give up on themselves. These men had not given up on Jesus. They've get, are you still here? They've given up on themselves. Some of you are caught back there in that last turn when I said he punishes us by loving us more. Listen, you don't need anybody to punish you any more than you punish yourself. And if you're waiting on him to punish you, to make you feel better, you're going to be waiting a long time. See, this is what he is revealing in that very moment. Even See, they're getting far more than what we're reading here. What they're getting in that very moment is that God had forgiven them before Jesus ever went to the cross. See, this is something, again, that will make you think the rest of the afternoon. Did God, was God unforgiving until Jesus died on the cross? No. You knew the answer to that, didn't you? But we act as if forgiveness was not something that we received until Jesus appeased this vengeful, wrathful father of his. And he got in between us. That's why Paul would say, the only alienation that has ever existed has existed in our minds. If you feel alienated from God, it is not something that he is doing to you because he is forever pursuing you. He is forever showing up behind your locked doors, in your lockdown, in your muddled mind. He is persistent. He will keep coming. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe or not. In fact, he's waiting on you to admit that you don't believe.
I got a little stirred there. Did you notice? Peace be with you. Do you do you think do you think that when he said that the second time that they remembered the first time they'd ever heard him utter that word? They'd heard it just a few days prior because he tells them, he said, my peace, I leave with you. You do understand that your inheritance is not in the sweet by and by. Do you understand that? Do you understand that your inheritance is not waiting on you on the other side of death's door? No, your inheritance is a present reality. I mean, I grew up in a culture that was always, it was like a carrot on a stick. That my inheritance is waiting out there. Right? You know, Peter even talks about this even more in his first epistle. He talks about that we have an inheritance that is preserved in heaven. But he's not talking about up there, out there somewhere. He's, that's not what he's talking about. Your inheritance is peace. But the first time that they'd ever heard him use this word was he was standing on the bow of a boat in a storm that was tossing this crude little boat about like a matchbox that is filled up with water. It's brimming with water, yet defying the laws of buoyancy. And they are losing their mind and losing their lunch. And they wake him up. The truth is, who was really asleep? And he walks to the bow of the boat, and he says, peace be still. Do you think maybe that flooded back in their memories? Because they're, in much of a, they're just as in much of a storm in John chapter 20 as they were back there in John chapter 4. <laughs> I, got, I just cannot leave this thing of woundedness because, see, I think that we've missed the whole point of the incarnation. We have relegated the incarnation. Why did he become one of us? Why? Well, he had to become one of us. He had to become the son of man so that we could become the sons of God, this great exchange. It wasn't a transaction like we've been taught because God's not a transactional God. Is everybody still with me so far? So we have reduced the purpose of him coming as a man and dying on the cross to atonement. It was a rescue mission is what it was. That's it. That's the reason why he became a man. It was a rescue mission. Can I tell you that it was more than that? Can I also tell you that even though he is infinite, limitless, there was something that might sound heretical that he was limited by. Even though he is infinite, he could not feel what we feel until he came into this dimension to experience what we experience. 
So what I'm telling you here, pure and simply, is that the purpose of the incarnation was not just a rescue mission, but it was for the purpose of empathy. He couldn't empathize with us until he felt pain, and he'd never felt pain. So bigger than that, bigger than, the, you know, him saving me from my sins or in my sins, bigger than all that, the purpose for him coming, that's the reason why he prefers to be called the son of man rather than the son of God. Because empathy is the echo of somebody else's pain. Remember what I told you earlier, don't be such a chatty Cathy when you go to try to minister to somebody who has had a loss. No, just be there. That's what empathy is. It's so entering, so fully entering the experience of another person that they resonate. We use that word, don't we? They resonate. They can feel it. That's why he's showing the wounds to them. And it's also to give them hope that if they will engage, if they will acknowledge that they too can experience resurrection. Because, see, to me, resurrection has never been just about a man coming back from the dead. Because the word resurrection fundamentally means to stand up. That's what it means more so than somebody coming out of a grave. It means to stand up. And there's so many different things that we don't feel like that we can understand or stand. I can't stand it any longer. That's what resurrection is. It's, uh, this is the reason why he tells them, he says, as I have been sent, I send you. Oh, come on now. See, that's the whole purpose of the resurrection is to walk out into a world where people are groping for understanding and they feel like they can't stand it any longer. And you are a living example of resurrection that you can stand up. You can stand under. So he breathes on them. I love this. He breathes on them, and he tells them, receive you the Holy Spirit. Again, John, just like he opens his gospel, he is always going back and borrowing the language of Genesis. Because, you know, he opens his gospel not with shepherds, not with wise men. He opens his gospel borrowing from the writer of Genesis in the beginning was the Word. Beautiful. So what is he referring to? Do you think that they, you think they had any clue, made any connection between him breathing in the room? Because they were suffocating. Hey, have you ever noticed this involuntary bodily response when you're under a lot of stress? What do you do? You sigh. You take, you try to somehow, I mean, you feel like something heavy on you, right? In fact, the word worry means to choke to the point of asphyxiation. I mean, you can connect it, right? This has been a respiratory plague. 
people lose their sense of taste. Right? I know, I know that I'm stretching it. You know, I understand principles of interpretation, but uh, I also know that people now more than ever before need to return to the great passage that says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord... I'm enjoying myself even if you are. <clears throat> oh, taste and see. In the... Interesting, isn't it, the connection between tasting and seeing? Oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Hmm. So he breathes on them. This is reminiscent, isn't it, of the first time that God ever took a breath in this realm? Who was the first, who was the first being that ever took a breath on this planet? It wasn't Adam. No. Because he was just a lifeless lump of clay. But it was God that took the first breath in this realm. It was love because God is love. That's his essence. Love took the first breath on this planet. Are you listening to me at all? Do you also understand that even the atheist who says there is no God is doing it with the breath of God? Everything that's breathing right now. See, people want encounters with God. I know. I understand. People want something that is, you know, palpable in nature. They want to feel it. And I get that because he's made us feelers. But maybe you ought to just go home and sit down in the quiet and watch your chest rise and fall. Rise and fall and realize inherent is in that is the very presence of the Creator. Just breathe. <laughs> That's what he did. He understands far better then we think we understand our trauma far better because he saw it coming <clears throat> before you ever saw it coming. He recognizes how life-threatening that hard, heartbrokenness can be. I first became aware of this particular condition about uh, 25 years ago. <clears throat> and I'll conclude with this. I have a friend that I've known for 44 years. She was married to my best friend and she was my wife's best friend. We did everything together as couples, and um, we received the news one night that her husband had been out on a sailboat, and they couldn't find him. To fast forward 
they discovered that he had drowned. He was young, in his 30s, he drowned. He had a son that was with him as he was sailing that afternoon who survived. He was so traumatized, though, he watched. He didn't really talk to me in any detail about his dad's drowning until about 15 or more years later. He was 13 when it happened. I've, I mean, I've been around people grieving before, but I've never heard anything like this in my entire life. Connie would sit in the bedroom, we'd be on the other side of the house, and I could hear her just guttural, crying. One time, she recovered, and she remarried. She had a son by her second husband. Almost to the day, 13 years later, this husband dies of a massive coronary. She's had two husbands, both she was married to, 13 years, had sons by both of them. She began to have heart palpitations. And she goes to a cardiologist, and they do all the extensive tests on her, and they conclude there's absolutely no physiological reason why you're manifesting these symptoms. And then the cardiologist consulted with a neurologist, and he explained the symptoms. And the neurologist said what she is experiencing is called broken heart syndrome. I'd never heard of that. And what was even more difficult to understand was that the physician told her, said, Connie, there's no blockages. There's no scarring that shows up on an EKG or otherwise. But the neurologist had, has advised me that this is just as life-threatening if you had heart disease. It'll kill you. Really? Yeah, she was suffering from this syndrome called heartbroken syndrome. There are a lot of people in this room, your heart has been broken over certain situations. And you've learned to manage. Sometimes it's excruciating. You got, you got to realize, you know, that Jesus didn't die of heart failure but can you imagine the stress that his heart was under as he absorbed all of our pain from the past into the future? He absorbed it all. That's so, what's so wonderful about the message of the cross is to understand that he absorbed it for us as us. These men, I think, like many of us, are deeply in need of getting our breath again. I'll never forget. It's only happened to me one time. You can go ahead and stand. I've gone four minutes over my allotted time. I've only had it happen once in my entire life, and I don't care that it ever happens again. When I was uh, 16 years old, uh, I was sitting up on a bale of cotton, 
horsing around and I fell off the back and when I mean full full weight the impact I fell flat on my back and I had the breath knocked out of me now not ever having had that experience before or even seeing somebody else that had the breath knocked out of them it was terrifying because you think you're dying I mean my eyes are open you know I'm still mentally alert but I'm like that. Have you ever had that happen to you? It's terrifying, isn't it? And and you, am I going to breathe again? (laughs) And I'll never forget. I mean, I'm there. Even though it happened, I was 16 years old, which you know, that's been a long time ago. Finally, I went, (gasps) man, I never had before or since a greater appreciation for this involuntary thing that happens breathing. <laughs> yeah. So, Father, you're in this room right now. You're in their room. You're appearing in their closed minds and their closed off broken hearts. And right now, Lord, may they hear just as clearly. Again, they don't need sermonizing. They don't need verses. They just need a little peace. Anybody need any peace this morning? Just some peace. Some of the people that you envy the most, that have the most possessions, don't have any peace. Think about that. Because there's nothing as valuable as peace. So we thank you for your peace this morning. Amen, everybody. We thank you for the peace that passes understanding. I just don't understand it. Don't You don't need to. You're on a need-to-know basis. When you need to know, you'll know. And you might not ever know. So why don't you just take some peace right now? Amen. Bless you. Thank you for letting me be here on Resurrection Sunday. Love you more than you know. I mean that, and there's nothing you can do about it. Amen.